0: Welcome. Glad you could join me on this day. Um, I want to start off by giving a quick shout out to a couple awesome people. To people who have been listening intently, who have been giving back feedback and supporting this podcast. Uh, First, to Redwan, who's also listening over at Currently Nerdy. You rock. Um, To Alex Morgan, old friend of mine. You are awesome. And of course, to Saba Moher and Christopher Kingston, both of you are amazing and it's people like you that help make this podcast possible so thank you all for your support and for tuning in and for sharing and giving feedback i have taken it on board and appreciate your listenership for those of you who are just tuning in make sure you subscribe and for those of you who are just curious hey check us out on social media you can follow me on instagram and twitter at a a o l o m i and use the hashtag #HeadOnHistory so that you can give feedback follow along ask questions if there's a particular topic you want me to cover that's how you can let me know and if you're enjoying this podcast do feel free to leave a review with itunes i I actually do read them and am very interested in what you have to say so now let's get to the meat of the matter now that we have all that nasty social media stuff out of the way we left last time on the Abbasid Caliphate and how it had overthrown the Umayyad and established this so-called Golden Age of Islam and we talked about how it produced scientific and technological advancements the translating of Greek and Persian writings and really talked about the Persian contributions to Islam. But what we didn't discuss is actually how this time period shaped the religion of Islam. So we've talked about the civilization of Islam, the blossoming of philosophy and art and science. But this also had a very important, the opposite period had a very important impact on the actual religion of Islam. And that is that it did two things. One, it formalized many aspects of the religion. And two, it produced the orthodoxy of both Sunni Islam and Shia Islam. So a lot of the developments that began in the Umayyad period were formalized in the Abbasid period. During the Umayyad period, when the Shia rebellions and Shia revolt were crushed quite violently, This forced Shia, the Shiatal Ali, this kind of political position of aligning yourself with the family of Ali, to turn inward, to reject the desire for revolution and instead to focus on internal um, religious beliefs. And this is evident in Muhammad al-Baqir, one of the imams of Shia Islam, who starts to uh, conceptualize this idea of the batin, the hidden side of the Qur'an. And this becomes an important component of Shia Islam. What he argues is that there is an exterior, a zahir, an external aspect to the Qur'an. And that's the literal, literal Qur'an. That's you reading it. That's the zahir, the outward, but there is an internal, hidden meaning to each of the verses known as the batin, and this can only be interpreted by the imam. This is a relationship, the relationship that they see between Muhammad and Ali. They argue that Muhammad reveals the Quran, but he passes on the hidden meaning of the Quran to Ali and Ali passes it down through his lineage vis-a-vis the Imams. This internalization, this focus on internal uh, interpretation of the Quran becomes an important component of Shia Islam and by the time of Jafar al-Sadiq, uh, one of the Imams, there is a complete and total rejection of the revolutionary and political component of Shi'ism. The caliphate has failed according to shia islam and this is what happens during the abbasids after the umayyads oppressed the shias violently the abbasids also ended up betraying them they ended up betraying the shia uh, individuals and rather than adopting Shiism as kind of the main political party of the opposites, they turn on the family of Ali while still trying to be careful to cultivate the the lineage of Muhammad vis-a-vis their claim of of coming from being descended from uh, Abbas. And so by, because of this betrayal, Shia Islam postulates that the caliphate has failed, that because of the experience of the Battle of Karbala, about the, the, the death of the various Imams and the oppression of Shia Islam, that the caliphate has failed, and instead what is needed is a spiritual Imamate. That is, that there is an Imam who is the spiritual leader of the community, whose job is to interpret Islam on behalf of the community that they would never fully established a political apparatus but they can have a religious spiritual community so the historic experience of betrayal and death transforms shia islam and produces the first orthodox, the true orthodoxy of Shi'ism. This is when we can say Shi'ism fully develops into a sect, a religious sect. Well, it originally it breaks off with with mainstream Islam quite early on and is one of the political factions vying for control. The break is cemented after the Battle of Karbala and through a series of, of uh, years, it eventually develops into the religious sect that we see, and it's mostly thanks to the Abbasids. The Abbasids' oppression forces Shia Islam to develop an orthodoxy, to develop itself as a religious theology. In other words, what Shia Islam does what under Muhammad al-Bakir and uh, Jafar al-Sadiq is they reimagine the historical experience vis-a-vis a theological lens. They give religious meaning to the experience of the Battle of Karbala. This is also the time period When we hear of the concept of taqiyah Oh no, red alert, taqiyah You know, Islamophobes all around the world Their ears have perked up Because Ali just said taqiyah If any of you have ever been on Twitter um, And if you ever try to have a conversation about Islam Or try to correct any type of freaking You know, misunderstanding One of the things that, that these What I call Wikipedia warriors will do Is they immediately go, oh taqiyah And that's their way of basically shutting down Anyone who's having a conversation about Islam or saying something that they disagree with, being able to hold on to their you know, prejudices without ever have to facing any sort of facts. It's actually quite interesting. We'll talk about taqiyah in season two, but also how it's been used in ways that really reminiscent the anti-communist and anti-Semitic language of of the 20th century. But anyways, taqiyah, which right-wing nutjobs basically mean, you know used to accuse all Muslims of lying, actually only means concealing your deeply held beliefs what it means is and it emerges out of this time period Jafar al sadiq is the one who promotes it and he argues that in order to avoid persecution and oppression by the political authorities the Abbasid Caliphate that the Shia, ali that the Shia can conceal some of their religious beliefs that they can they don't have to say that you know we think the Caliphate is corrupt and failed and we're going to follow the Imamate they don't have to say that they can conceal that portion of their beliefs so it's actually a historical reality, not something that uh, people use later. And as as Shia Islam develops orthodoxy, so too does Sunni Islam. what We will eventually become mainstream Islam. And this is mostly thanks to the Abbasids. So when the Abbasids established their caliphate, they were very interested in consolidating their authority. They accused the Umayyads of ruling like leaders, but the Abbasids themselves actually ruled like kings. So even though they used the accusation against the Umayyads, they themselves were totally about absolute monarchy. But how were they going to get the caliphate to transform from this aristocracy into a a, a monarchy? How were they going to break so fully with the sort of egalitarian, simplistic, and accessible caliphate of the Rashidun? Well, what they needed to do is they needed to cultivate the intelligence. Early on, they were very keen on developing a relationship with a group of people known as the Mutazili. Now, the Mutazili were intellectuals. This was a group of philosophers who had emerged out of this Umayyad Abbasid time period as one Theological position and a very intellectual theological position as a result of translation of Greek philosophy the Motezili absorbed Greek rationalism into Islam and so what they were trying to do is grapple with theological debates now all religions deal with this at some point or another you come across contradictions in Christianity this is seen in the figure of Christ 300 years after Christ lives Christianity has to confront the reality that there is no Orthodox position on the nature of Christ. Is he man? Is he God? Is he both? And so you have the Council of Nicaea that happens in 325 CE. I think it's 325. Yes, it is 325. Um, And so that's the, the position for Christianity. Well, Islam goes to the same thing. And the main issue for Islam is the nature of the Qur'an. Well, what is the Qur'an? It's a holy book. We get it. But is the Qur'an created? Is it uncreated? Is it eternal? Can it be changed? And this is something that the Mutazali deal with. And so what they argue is that if you were to believe that the Qur'an is uncreated, That in other words, it has no beginning, and that it is eternal, then this thing is technically on the same level of God, and that can't be. And so they argue that the Qur'an is created, it's a human language, but that it's uh, a human capacity to transmit divine principles like justice and truth. This is very appealing to the early Abbasids who found this kind of intellectual definition of the Quran gave them the flexibility to exert their own authority. They could argue that, well, I'm upholding justice, therefore I'm the rightful Khalif. But the thing is that the Mutazili, in many ways very similar to Shia Islam, because it was so esoteric, tended to be quite elitist. Just like Shia Islam was really a minority position at this time period, even though it had developed an orthodoxy, the Mu'tazili were only really appealing to the upper echelons of opposite society, people who were reading Greek philosophy. The average Muslim was not interested in the Mu'tazili position. Instead, they were interested in another position, and that is the position known as the Ahli al-Hadith. So there was this movement that started under the Umayyads, the Umayyads under Abu Hanifa. Because of the kind of aristocratic and high culture of the Umayyads, Muslims at the local level started to reject that, that type of uh, lifestyle and focus instead on trying to emulate the simple lifestyle of Muhammad. And this was put forth by a man named Abu Hanifa Abu Hanifa began and to uh, systematize the collection of the hadith that is the sayings of Muhammad and he argued that by systematizing by interpreting these hadith you could create guidelines in order to live your lifestyle and those guidelines became known as sharia the path what a lot of people mistranslate as islamic law actually is really a set of guidelines that emerge as a counterculture to state practices to courtly practices and is ultimately uh, localized now this the development of sharia is mostly thanks to the contribution of female scholars and it's really important to recognize the work that they do so the majority of a significant portion i should say of the hadiths that are transmitted are done so vis-a-vis muhammad's own wives so aisha and hafsa both hafsa the, the daughter of of Omar and Aisha, the daughter of Abu Bakr, become really important figures for transmitting all the hadiths or a significant portion of the hadiths. They teach about Muhammad. They teach about, they interpret the Quran. And that transmission becomes the core of Sharia, we also have other figures like Fatima al bataiya Bata'iyah was a, such a famous scholar of the hadiths that she actually taught in Muhammad's mosque in Medina These scholarly women were known as the Muhadithat these, That is, women that were uh, transmitting hadiths And so these women, what they had transmitted, become systematized under Abu Hanifa However, there's a group of students under Abu Hanifa that breaks away from him. And this becomes known as the Ahl al-Hadith, the people of the Hadith. And they emerge in the Abbasid period as rejecting some of Abu Hanifa's principles. Abu Hanifa argued that you simply needed to emulate Muhammad. And for those areas where... Muhammad in the Quran didn't have an answer because life, you know, life is complicated and Islam had grown so rapidly and it was experiencing new realities that you could use the principles of justice and interpretation to come up with guidance. The Ahli al-Hadith reject that. They go, no, no, no. You can only follow the hadiths and muhammad and you have to have a very strict and literal interpretation this group uh was led by a name uh, by led by a man named ahmad ibn hanbal ahmad ibn hanbal goes on to found what eventually becomes known as the hanbali school of thought but the ahli al-hadith are interesting they're quietest they're not interested in politics they do set up a very clear uh, acceptance of the caliphate. They say the first four caliphs, the Rashidun, we accept all of them. They were rightly guided. We owe allegiance to the current caliph, whether he's a good caliph or a bad caliph. We are not going to uh, rebel against them. Instead, we're going to practice Islam in a simple, honest, Puritan fashion by emulating Muhammad to the best of our abilities, and we're going to stay away from uh, politics this became very appealing and so at some point the abbasid caliphs shift from owing their allegiance to the Mutazili to owing their allegiance to the ahli al-hadith they start to adopt and patronize these new ahli al-hadith because they were quietest and because it offered them some form of legitimacy This time period where they kind of shift back and forth is known as the minya, or the interrogation. And it's the first time period in which there is kind of persecution uh, for people's beliefs and practices. The Apocets got involved directly in religion, religious debates and try to produce an orthodoxy because if they can consolidate religious beliefs and practices then they can also consolidate their own power, therefore giving themselves legitimacy to rule so originally they start off with the Mutazili and they suppress the al Hadith and they even imprison Ahmad ibn Hanbal, they throw him in jail because he refuses to acknowledge that the Quran is uncreated and that it's not internal, that it's human work. For the those caliphs, that was very important for them Because it gave them wiggle room, it gave them authority over the Quran Eventually, they shift over to the Ahli al-Hadith Because the quietest component of the Ahli al-Hadith is appealing to them It means that they, the religious uh, elite would never rebel against them And more importantly, because the Ahli al-Hadith had popular uh support people were able to access what the ahli al-hadith were saying versus the mu'tazili which were elite philosophers and the ahli al-hadith also had an important position on the quran they said that the quran is uncreated that it is eternal the word of god the one cannot see god but every time the quran is recited you can hear god and that is becomes the sort of imminent experience of islam the, the experience of divinity uh, immediately accessible This was super popular With the people But the Mina was never fully resolved Neither the Mutazali Nor the ahli al-Hadith End up coming out on top But what does happen Is that the ahli al-Hadith Start to systematize The Hadiths And this produces Sharia Following the example of Abu Hanifa The followers of Ahmad ibn Hanbal create their own system of Sharia that is more strict and that is about emulating Muhammad without using any form of personal reasoning. Whereas personal reasoning and personal justification and personal decision-making was a very important component of the followers of Hanif, of Abu Hanifa. It was not so under Ahmad ibn Hanbal. And so you had the emergence of two separate schools. The Hanafi school in which ijtihad that is personal reasoning was important and the hanbali school which rejected that alongside these came another uh school of thought founded by a guy named ibn malik malik uh, basically codified all the customs of con- of his contemporaneous medina and he said look if you follow the practices of medina on divorce marriage etc that's the sunnah Shafi, who was a student of, of Malik, said, no, that's not enough. There are certain circumstances that you come across in life that just doesn't cover, isn't covered by Medinan practices. And so he argued that there you can use analogy to come up with uh, laws. And this is known nice as kiyas. Taken together, this becomes sharia. Now, like I said, this is not actually Islamic law, but rather a set of guidances. Now, Islam is quite unique in regards to that most of the core of the faith was actually established by the time of Muhammad's death. Uh, The five pillars of Islam accepted by everyone, the basic tenets of belief, the Shahada, that there is only one God and Muhammad is his messenger, all of that was, was already fully established. What the Sharia deals with is the experiences of Muslims post-Muhammad, what happens when you suddenly have an empire, right, Muhammad didn't have an empire, he created one single unified tribe, but what happens when you have a massive empire, what, what do you do with taxes, how much do you give in zakat, how much do, you, which is uh, the tax that you pay, how much do you give in charity, uh, do, you know, what? Ha, how do you open orphanages, things like that, so the sharia, these different aspects of sharia, they become known as the madhabas, or the schools of Islamic law. Uh, Again, incorrectly using the word law there. But they're really schools of jurisprudence, of interpreting the hadiths and the Qur'ans to give guidance to people. Even though there's four madhabas or schools of thought, in reality they agree on most of the core principles. Most of Islam, like I said, was established already by Muhammad. So it's only these minor details that change. For example, all of the madhabas pray five times a day, and all the prayers are the same. There may be slight differences in where you hold your hand. For example, the Maliki may hold their hand by their side, whereas the Hanafi may hold their hand on their solar plexus. But at the end of the day they're still performing the Salat. So this is this is really important. That's what the Abbasids provided because of their, you know intervention in religion by siding first with the mutazili and then with the ahli al Hadith, this helped to create sharia and orthodoxy but it had an unintended consequences sharia didn't work in their favor Sharia was a rejection of Abbasid courtly culture. So what happened is Sharia became the local practices of Muslims, while the Abbasids lived lavish lifestyles that were more aligned with the Sasanian kings. Remember that in Islam, um, there wasn't this uh, concept of a harem but the sasanians had a concept of a harem and so the abbasids would have you know dozens upon dozens of wives in the same in the same way that the sasanian kings did so this sharia became not about enforcement and this is a key component of sharia the sharia at its heart is not about state enforcement in fact it has nothing to do with the state but rather what it does have to do with is a local Uh, localized expressions of Islam, about an internalizing Islam, about how you as an individual or you as a local community can practice your Islam. And the key word here is practice. Islam is very interested in how Islam looks and how Islam is enacted. And all religions kind of deal with this to various degree. There's orthodoxy, which means the official uh beliefs there's orthopraxy which are the official practices christianity is very interested in orthodoxy you have to believe a certain way in order to be christian Judaism is very interested in orthopraxy. You have to practice a certain way in order to be Jewish. Islam is a balance of both. You have to have certain beliefs and you have to have certain practices. And because of the Abbasid meddling, both of these emerged as a response to the Abbasids. And they're both a critique of Abbasid lifestyles. And out of this comes a unique class of individuals known as the ulema. And the ulema means scholars. The scholars both simultaneously give legitimacy to the caliph by giving him authority while also being a check on the caliph's authority arguing that the caliph at the end of the day is not a king but only an administer of the state he can only administer uh, the islamic state and that's it He has no right over religious dialogue. He has no right to get involved in in the religious and personal matters of Muslims. In fact, he is not allowed to dictate to Muslims what they can believe and what they can't believe, nor can he interfere with individual Muslims. So the unintended consequence of the Abbasids is that they produce a completely separate class, a class that was aimed to give them legitimacy and consolidate their power, but at the end of the day became a check against their power. The ulama establish both the Sharia as well as the science of history. In an attempt to try to systematize the hadiths, you had to decide which hadiths were true and which hadiths were not. There was so much that was transmitted and so many people would make up hadiths in order to justify that a new science emerged known as the science of isnad, that is, testimony. So what the ulama would do is study the hadith and see how it was transmitted over time, basically creating a link, an evidentiary link to prove whether a hadith was uh, valid, uh likely weak or false this becomes becomes the basis of modern history, of tarikh. This is how history is done nowadays, and it comes out of actually this religious moment. Western Christianity adopts it, and we're gonna talk about how Western Christianity, uh, or Christendom and Western civilization, adopts this particular historic practice. It's also at this time that the hadiths are compiled into official compendiums, uh, Muslim and Bukhara being the two most famous compendiums of the hadiths. But despite this consolidation, the th- orthodoxy between the Ahli al-Hadith and the Mutazili isn't actually resolved until the 10th century. When Abu al-Hassan al-Ashari emerges, This is a, he's a philosopher and a theologian who basically takes a middle position. He says, okay, on one hand, we can accept the Mutazili position of rationalism. We can accept that uh, the Quran has a created component. So here's what we'll do. The Quran is uncreated speech, but the ink and paper that it's written on is created. God has certain anthropomorphic qualities. He sees, he sits on a throne, he creates, but he's unlike anything that is truly created. And so this middle position becomes known as the ashari position it takes a little bit of the mu'tazili it takes a little bit of the ahl al-hadith and that's what becomes adopted into uh, mainstream islam and that's what becomes known as sunnism sunnism basically accepts the position of the middle position of the ahl al-hadith and the mu'tazili arguing that uh, the, kal- the first four caliphs were rightly guided That the job of the Muslim community now is to check the Khalif. The Khalif was not to have unrestricted power, but he was only to have power so long as he administered justly. And that individually and as a community it was the job of muslims to emulate muhammad to every detail of his life the way he ate the way he slept the way he prayed and by doing so you could appear close to god and that's what the diff that becomes the core of sunnism if shiism is proximity to muhammad and proximity to god by lineage that is listening and emulating the lineage of muhammad vis-a-vis the imams proximity to Muhammad by emulating Muhammad's behaviors becomes Sunni Islam or the Sunnah position. This becomes the major contribution religiously by the Abbasids. But there is more. There are actually three cultural centers of Islam during this time period. There's Baghdad under the Abbasids, this Cairo under the Fatimids, and this Cordoba under the Umayyads, which eventually becomes a sort of emir- the Emirate of Cordoba. So if Baghdad is the center of theology, then the Fatimids. Cairo is the center of philosophy. Philosophy starts in Baghdad, vis-a-vis the Bayt al-Hikmah that we talked about uh, last week. With the translating of Greek philosophy and Roman philosophy and Persian writings, philosophy becomes really important, what's known as philosoph. But with theology developing in Baghdad, it's really the Fatimids that continue the tradition of philosophy. Now the Fatimids were a separate sect of Shia Islam known as Ismailis. Now the difference between the Ismailis and mainstream orthodox uh, Shia Islam is the number of Imams that they accept. The Ismailis in 909 establish what is known as the Fatimid Caliphate. What they do is they start in Tunisia, they conquer Tunisia, declare it as independent from the Abbasids, and then they move and take over most of the Maghreb or North Africa, establishing themselves in Egypt and in Cairo specifically. In fact, it's Khalif al-Muiz that creates the city of Cairo, or modern-day Cairo. While there is an old city there that can be tied to ancient Egypt, it's actually the Fatimids that... Create the modern city, and so we have them to thank for that. And what's interesting about the Ismailis is that one, their beliefs are initiatory. On one hand, they believe that there's the religion for the average person, but as you get closer and closer to learning more and their beliefs and their doctrines, you become initiated to a sort of inside order or an internal order or a secret society of sorts. And there you were revealed certain beliefs. And for the Ismailis, they try to interpret Islam vis a vis the rationalism of Plato and Aristotle. They're very interested in the Greek connection, arguing that the sort of philosophical Islam that is espoused in people like Al Farabi, uh, and Ibn Sina in in the uh, Abbasid world is actually the type of Islam that needs to dominate, and they're very economical. So even though the Ismaili and and philosophical Islam becomes the core of the Fatimid world, the Shia Muslims can still. Uh, reach high rank. Sunni Muslims can reach high rank. Jews and Christians, and this is the same about the Abbasids too. The Abbasids may have been a monarchy, but society was way more horizontal than it was with the Umayyads, who had created a Arab caliph, uh, a sort of Arab society. The Abbasids: if you were Jewish, you could reach very high ranks. I mentioned last week the Barkhameds were Buddhists that eventually converted to Islam, and they were the one, the chief viziers of Abbasid society. The Ismailis, what the Ismailis uh, and the Fatimids do is they give us the sort of intellectual legacy of Islam. They create the university system that eventually influences Western Europe. So you have first, of course, Al-Hazar University, established in Cairo, which becomes the major institution of religious learning, and was at the time a leading philosophical institution. You also have, under the Idrisis, the the kind of dynasty dynasty, that existed before the Fatimids. In 859, you have the oldest university in the world uh, established by a female, and again, this is recognizing the contributions of women, Fatima al Fahiri. She founds the oldest university in the world known as Al qarawiyya and it's still around to this day in Morocco. It is the oldest degree granting university. And the system uh, that we find in Azhar and, and, and uh, Fatima al Fahiri's university is something that becomes adopted into Western Europe. Um, the Just as the Fatimids uh, really adopt philosophical Islam, so does the Emirate of Cordoba. The Emirate of Cordoba was established under Ab- Abdul Rahman II, the last of the Umayyads, who was pushed out of the levant and the arab peninsula and into uh, the iberian peninsula and so you had al andalus which is basically muslim spain and portugal uh it penetrated quite deeply into western europe and this civilization this Cordoba civilization, this Islamic Al-Andalus, also becomes the home of philosophical Islam. It's a fascinating time period and really corresponds to this idea of a a golden age, these three cultural centers, Baghdad, Cairo, and Cordoba, in which Jews and Christians lived alongside Muslims. You had things like running water, you had things like lampposts, uh, You had things like beautiful gardens and poetry and music and art. And most importantly, philosophy. And the philosophy that emerges in Al-Andalus, I think that is most significant. And we'll talk more about philosophy, Al-Andalus... In season two, but I wanted to mention as part of the theological developments, the main philosopher that comes out of Al-Andalus, or the one that's most significant, I would say, is Ibn Rushd, Ibn Rushd, or known as Averroes in the West. Ibn Rushd really adopts Aristotle's philosophy, and he develops a system, an Islamic concept of rational belief that becomes so important that it is then adopted by later Christian philosophers like Thomas Aquinas and Albertus Magnus. And for anyone who understands the history of philosophy, Ibn Rushd is actually the forefather of secularism. He's the one who takes the system that starts to emerge in the Muslim world, in which you have a ruler, the khalif, then you have a separate class of people that deal with religion, known as the ulama, And then you have a group of people that deal with the state, known as the viziers. This separation of powers in which religion is dealt with by ulama, not by the state, becomes institutionalized or formalized in Ibn Rushd writing, where he uh, kind of connects it with Aristotelian thought. And that really becomes the beginnings of secularism. And later on in... uh, Christian Europe, Averroism becomes the philosophy that inspires later secularist movements. So we see theological developments in Baghdad, philosophical developments, and uh, the developments of education in Fatimid uh, Egypt. You have philosophical Islam in the Umayyad or Emirate of Cordoba. All of this is great and wonderful, but there is a separate movement that also comes out of this particular time period, and that is Sufism. So Sufism actually starts quite early on, and again we see it under the Umayyads. There's a man uh, known as Junaid of Baghdad, who just like the sunni position just like shia position was in response to the historical experience of the caliphate really failing to live up to the islamic principles of egalitarianism then turns inward he adopts a particular practice of monasticism of an islam that doesn't focus on politics or society but focuses on internal purification that the heart needs to be purified in order to reach closer to God and one of the key founders of Sufism is a woman named Rabia Rabia is a poet and she writes this particularly beautiful verse that I think encapsulates Sufis the essence of Sufism quite well she says oh God if I worship you for fear of hell then cast me into hell if I worship you for love of heaven then deny me heaven but if i worship you for love of you then do not turn your face from me and i think this becomes really the core of what sufism tries to create it tries to create a simple mystical interpretation of islam this becomes a. Uh, known as tasawwuf or the internal practices meditation god consciousness trying to live a life so that you're not just emulating a series of practices like the sunnis do that you're not just following uh, any mom like the shi'a do but that you truly in everything that you do every action develop a form of god consciousness and so while you s- the beginnings of the sufism starts under the umayyad period it isn't until the abbasid period that it becomes formalized as an established movement and that is a movement that rejects the debates of the mu'tazili and the ash'ari and the ahl al-hadith that rejects the kind of orthodoxy of sunnism and shiism while definitely linked to sunnism as a sort of mystical branch of sunnism they still practice the five pillars of islam they're more focused not on the kind of systemization of islam but rather the internalization of islam of creating what's known as uh, god consciousness this is often known as ihsan or perfection that is to live life as if you see god uh, live life as, even if you don't see God, knowing that He sees you. This kind of constant awareness of God. And Sufism becomes one of the most popular movements within the time period. It becomes the grassroots movement, it becomes the populism of Islam because it's easily uh, practiced. It's not focused on this kind of educated learning that's needed for sunnism nor is it you know this focus on esoteric interpretation that we see in shiism nor is it the high-minded uh philosoph- rationalist view of the mutazili or the philosophical look of the philosopher instead it's readily accessible it's rooted in things like subjectivity and emotion and it's actually sufism that helps to bring islam into central asia into what is today afghanistan and in south asia the Sufis established a series of monasteries so that travelers uh, who were traveling the Silk Roads could uh, stop and have a place to eat and sleep. And it's because of those monasteries that the populace starts to convert to Islam vis-a-vis their charity work and their promulgation, kind of contrary to the myth of Uh, spreading by the sword. These are the major developments under the Abbasid period. I know we've talked about so much for this uh, episode, but there was a lot to unpack. If you feel like you're missing something, don't worry. We're actually going to go back in Season 2 and look much closer at things like Sunnism, Shiism, Sufism, the development of Sharia, philosophical and cultural Islam. But I wanted uh, you to at least understand the major theme before we go in depth in Season 2 too. And, that's, and the major theme is that the Abbasids take what happens and starts in the Umayyads and they formalize it. They institutionalize it. And that is what produces orthodoxy. And contrary to kind of the discussions that you often hear about Sharia and orthodoxy, this isn't state-sanctioned. It actually develops in response to to the state i know there was a lot to cover i'm just going to give you some book recommendations and we are going to call it a day if there's anything that seems unclear or you want me to go over again be sure to tweet me or facebook message me use that hashtag like i mentioned in the beginning of the podcast uh because season two will be coming up and we're going to be going more in depth but thematically rather than doing this kind of chrono- chronology of islamic history we're going to take a theme the hijab uh jihad sharia and we're going to do an in-depth look at it so here are the books that i'm going to recommend now i got to be honest the books that i'm recommending are probably in my top 10 favorite books there's a, no i won't say that but they're probably some of my top favorite books these are the ones that i'm recommending up until now i've given you books that are good that i've read myself and gone oh these are really good and accessible but some of these books that i'm about to present are actually books that i have reread myself quite frequently because they feature in my own research and stuff so first i'm going to recommend uh, god's crucible islam and the making of europe by david levering lewis who is a professor over at nyu he's a pulitzer prize winning he's like one of the top writers in the field a brilliant brilliant historian also did a great history of wd du bois uh, for anyone who's interested um but he his book god's crucible islam and the making of europe is really good it focuses specifically on al Andalus that is Islamic Spain, and how the developments of Islam there really do make modern Europe. It the, From education and universities to philosophy and writing, that kind of, the so-called golden age of Islam really impacts Europe, and it's what produces eventually the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. I mean, without Islam, those things would not have been possible. And in this book, he he pulls the receipts he shows you why that is the case um, this is the, the second book is actually a reference book but it's something that everyone should have on their on their shelf it's called the cambridge companion to classical islamic theology and it's written by a professor of oxford i believe it's no it's cambridge or oxford uh, a guy named tim winter who converted to islam as a british man uh, and he now goes by the name of abdul hakim murad i also recommend a canonization of islamic law by Ahmad El shamsi he is at the university of chicago this is a Book that I reference quite frequently. It really talks about what I've discussed in this episode quite in depthly of how Islamic law comes to be, how it becomes the madhabas begin the process of canonization, Uh, and it's really important work on intellectual history. Finally, I recommend Jonathan A. C. Brown, who's also a Muslim convert. His book "Misquoting Muhammad: The Challenge and Choices of Interpreting the Prophet's Legacy." This is an amazing book. Jonathan A. C. Brown is a really great scholar at George Mason. If I'm not mistaken no georgetown university is where he's at He's at georgetown university and his misquoting muhammad is a fantastic intellectual history of the hadiths how the hadiths um, the system of hadiths emerges how the legacy of muhammad becomes established vis-a-vis those hadiths anyways that's all for now hopefully you enjoyed this podcast i know there was a lot to cover we'll be back next week with another discussion of the end of the abbasids and the rise of the turco-persian world Um, On that note, thanks for tuning in, and stay smart, you beautiful history nerds.